Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. got a Bible, could you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. I'm just going to take a look at this line here embedded in this verse and see if we can't derive some encouragement from the good Lord herein. If I have not met you yet, my name is Craig. I serve as the lead pastor at Ascension Church and I've been here now enough times that I think for the majority of you, there's at least some familiarity. And uh, if not, I haven't met you yet, please, by all means, uh, make sure we get a chance to meet. It's such a delight to be welcomed back to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. I learned many years ago when I first started preaching the gospel, visiting different churches, uh, I was taught by a, a more senior, experienced uh, preacher and, uh, and gospel minister. He said the best compliment you'll ever receive uh, when you go and preach at a church, that you know, they're going to tell you they, they loved it, they, thanks for coming, we, we love you, but it's that return invite that really shows whether they really did enjoy your ministry in the Word. So the fact that I keep getting asked back, keep getting asked back, makes me feel like there is some blessing that God has been pleased to use me as the instrumentality here on a wonderful Sunday afternoons that we've shared together. Now, these few words embedded in God's glorious, inerrant, inspired word uh, make up our encouragement today. Last Sunday, for those that were able to join us, we spent a bit of time in Colossians chapter 1. And you may remember we spent quite a a large portion of our time together looking at the the glory of Christ, His preeminence, His humanity, His divinity, His omniscience and omnipotence and all those glorious, really big, often quite intimidating theological truths. And we spoke about the fact that for the Apostle Paul, really, you know, really pastor Paul, he pastored different churches and exercised oversight. His heart was that Christians would be encouraged. And that's a theme that we're going to discover as we study our New Testaments. That's a, it's a perpetual theme in the gospel that, and in the New Testament that these leaders of the church want to encourage the believers. Because the truth is, we all go through pretty grim experiences. We all go through fairly dark times. You know, the Puritans used to call it the dark night of the soul. And what they meant by that was, you're going through a, a, a hard season, maybe, maybe because of outward circumstances. Maybe it's, it finances are tough, there's illness in the family, someone's been let go at a job or whatever it may be, or perhaps it's, it's spiritual in nature. Maybe you're going through a season where you just feel inordinately dry and, and you're struggling and you're wondering, what does all this mean, God? What is this for? Is there, is there obvious sin in my life you want me to eradicate? Am I, am I supposed to be doing something that, that, that I've just kind of let slide? God, help me. And, and sometimes, as I said this last week in my introductory remarks, I've been in pastoral ministry now well over two decades. And I can just reassure you again, as I had done last Sunday afternoon, the number one pressing concern that I get spoken to as a pastor and a local church minister is Christians struggling with what we call the assurance of faith or the, the assurance of our salvation. And and we want to speak about that a little bit today because I believe that there are people here today and you came to church and you 
you almost didn't come to church. It, like there was, there, was, there was a battle as to whether you were going to feel up for it. The, the spiritual fuel just seemed low and, and the energy and, and the desire just didn't quite seem to be there. And maybe some of you have gone through a real tumultuous time wondering whether you're even saved at all. You don't feel saved. You ever, you ever had those moments where you don't feel saved? And, 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 and if that moment begins to lengthen and it becomes maybe an hour, maybe, God forbid, a day, a week, sometimes a whole season, and you lose any semblance of, am I supposed to feel saved? This is not a new phenomenon. This is something that Christians have experienced since the origin of the Christian church. And John this time, not Paul, but John, encourages these New Testament believers, almost certainly at the church of Ephesus is where John is writing. And he says, whenever our heart condemns us, this is John, 1 John 3, verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Many years ago, I was preaching in a church. Actually, I was in East Texas at the time, pastoring there. And I, and I was preaching, and I came across this verse in my preaching, and I, I just mentioned it. And there was a gentleman there, a very educated man. He was, uh, he was the head of the English department where we lived in Texas. Ostensibly, was kind of an artificial city. It existed because there was this big state university. And all of the business and the infrastructure and the industry was all there to serve the university. And this was the head of the English department, very intelligent. He'd authored books and he was a playwright. He was a brilliant man. And he visited our church and he came this one night and I read this verse and he just... He said his eyes just opened in a way that he'd never felt before. And then he confessed to me what I've heard dozens, maybe hundreds of Christians confess throughout the years of pastoral ministry that we struggle sometimes with a heart of condemnation. We struggle sometimes to, to get a sense of God's pleasure upon us, God's delight in us, God's grace in our life. And to be quite honest today, there are some of you that have been that have been harboring a sense of shame because you've wondered whether you are really saved. You've felt this heart condemnation and, and you've begun to believe it as, as though it was true of your circumstance and you've wrestled with it and you've wrestled with it and you've kept wrestling with it until you felt like your strength had all entirely gone and you were painfully stricken with a lack of assurance of your standing in Christ. Now, the first observation I want to make this afternoon in your hearing, dear brothers and sisters, is this. I'm using the ESV. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, English translation of the New Testament. Some of you may have other translations, but the first thing that strikes me, maybe it did you when I just read it, was the Scripture doesn't say when your heart condemns you. It doesn't, let me restart that. It doesn't say if, it says when. For whenever our heart condemns us, the bedrock of our faith is, of course, Christ and the objective reality of salvation in Christ. But every Christian will have seasons where you go through, maybe it's a dry spell, maybe it's doubt, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's sin that you're just struggling to gain the ascendancy over. Jude tells the believers that alongside earnestly contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, we have mercy on those who doubt. In fact, I want to say this. If I can lean a little bit this afternoon on those couple of decades of ministry experience, and, and, and Lord willing, there'll be many decades to come. I don't say that as if I'm at the end of my ministry tenure, not by any stretch. But I want to say this, that I've learned something over these many years of serving churches all over the Western world. I have actually learned that it's those believers that never go through times 
of doubt and difficulty that I'm most concerned about. Those, those Christians that when you talk to them, they're just, they're just always on. They're always up. They're always feeling it. They're always living in it, going through it, loving it. Those are the ones that, if you've been in ministry long enough, pastors and elders will know this. It's not six months, 12 months, 18 months, and suddenly they've come out a Mormon, a universalist, something just so, so left field, something so bizarre and something so unanticipated. Because the average, the general, the common, the, the normal Christian experience is to go through periods of dryness. That's why John says, not if, <laughs> I'm bludgeoned that before, but we're going to get it right. Not if, but when your heart condemns you. John wants the Christians at Ephesus, and of course Christians everywhere, because this is inspired scripture, to realize that dark periods, down times of doubt, unbelief, frustration... These are normal in the Christian life. In fact, I'm very concerned about those ones who never seem to experience it at all. When our heart condemns us, John says, we understand it's a painful experience. It's a disorientating experience. Yet it is an experience that is uniquely for those that are redeemed. In fact, in verse 21, which of course is the very next verse of 1 John 3, John goes on and says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now that's good because what Peter, uh, John, I'm preaching Peter in the morning, so if I keep saying Peter, you'll know we're talking about. John, help me out here a little bit. Just humor me in that. John is helping us to realize that the Christian life, because we are in the flesh, because we're in a world sunken by sin, God has given sufficient grace. Yes, that's true. But there is a real war between spirit and flesh. There is a real war between grace of God in our life and the Adamic nature which remains. John wants to cover the whole gamut, right? When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And God knows everything. And if our heart, this time if, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now for some of you who maybe most recently have gone through one of these dry experiences, one of these dark nights of the soul so described, you understand that feeling of lacking confidence. This is what a condemning heart robs us of. It is a spiritual, an emotional, a, a psychological confidence. Prayers become faint and weak. Devotion becomes irregular, maybe even non-existent. Evangelism becomes a burden. It's easy to feel like if you're actually out doing evangelism, it's easier to feel fake than, than genuine. It's easier to feel artificial than authentic. Some of you know what I'm talking about. For some of you, I'm speaking so close to home, you are wondering how on earth this verse is going to be a comfort to you. But hold on and rest assured. The first thing that I suspect we might, we, we might want to ask today is why does a renewed heart condemn? Like haven't we, haven't we embraced the truth of Scripture that when we become born again, we're given a new heart, right? The, the old heart of stone, the, the fleshly rebellious heart is, is extracted, it's taken out and God gives us a, a new heart. Why would it condemn? Why would it struggle? Why would the regenerate heart be in a position to be misleading or whatever the case may be? And Paul said this, this time, yes, it is Paul. Paul said this in Galatians 5, 16 to 17. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For if the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit... 
And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Friend, that is a uniquely Christian experience. You have to have the spirit. You have to be born again, born anew, born of God. Have the Holy Spirit taken up residence inside of you as new covenant believers in Christ to have this experience. I can't tell you the amount of Christians that I've counseled one-on-one over the years and come and said to me, Pastor, I'll tell you why I'm struggling. I've got this sin in my life and I passionately hate it and I want to gain the victory over it and I'm struggling and I'm frustrated and I say, good news. And man, they look at you, right? Like, what are you on, Pastor? I thought you might be giving up the uh, psychedelic drugs. No, I'm not on any kind of drugs. I'm saying if you're doubting your salvation because there is a war between spirit and flesh in you, good news, doubt no longer. That war is only a reality if you're saved. There's no war if you're not saved. You know how a non-Christian, unregenerate person wars against sin? You know what their war looks like? Will I get caught? Will will I be seen to be less than how I'm pompously pluming myself for others to observe? Will people think less of me? Can Can I get away with it? Do I really care? That's how the unregenerate person wrestles against sin. They really don't wrestle at all. It's the Spirit of God, Paul says, inside of you. You cannot have the Spirit of God inside of you lest you are born again. So this is the comfort. Now, please... Please let me reassure you, when I'm sitting across from someone in a pastoral moment, counseling them to gain victory over their sin, to war against the lust of the flesh, I don't pat them on back and say, well done, the war is good news. I say, let's fight, let's get in the trenches, let's arm ourselves with the Spirit's weaponry, let's win this war. But there is no reason for anyone in the midst of the war to start to believe they're not saved. We read in this text, according to Paul, Galatians 5, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. As the spirit inside of us not only cries out, Abba, Father, the spirit inside of us not only unites us to Christ by faith, the spirit inside of us is not only the down payment, the seal of our sanctification and salvation, the spirit inside of us wages war against that sinful nature that remains. In fact, I believe in Romans 7, I believe Paul gives us some autobiographical content to this. Romans 7, verse 23, in fact, there's quite a few verses here we're going to read together. So if you're able, turn with me in your Bible to Romans 7. A number of years ago, this is just sidetrack while you're turning there. A number of years ago, when I was studying my master's in theology at the University of Chester in the UK, maybe three, four years ago now, I was asked by a professor to write a paper on Romans 7, paper, it's an American word, write an essay, that's an Australian phrase, on Romans 7, and to prove that it's Paul's current biographical or autobiographical experience. I was just overcome by a sense of frustration at how many Christians read Romans 7 and don't think that's Paul's current immediate experience. The evidence is so paper thin for any other interpretation. Paul says this about his current experience. I see in my members another law warring against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, for Paul, wearing Galatians, 
He drew, a, he drew a dichotomy, right? We could say he drew an antithesis, two things, at odds, at opposition to each other. Paul in Galatians said it's flesh and spirit. But here in Romans 7, he's helping you to see those categories as, as a law of his mind and a law of his members. Members being the body, the flesh. In Greek, it's the sarkos. It's the, it's the carnality of who we are. In Romans 7, let's take a look at verse 18 and 24. Maybe it would have been better to read it all together, but I want to pull out some points here. Because we grieve our sin, this is the truth, friend, as we're about to look at this passage, and grief is seldom rational, we can see from our text the way that this grief kind of bubbles up. It's effervescent in the life of the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 18, then we're going to read 24, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire, that is of course present tense, current, it's not, it's not ambiguous, friend. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, he means in his flesh. Verse 24, he ends in this effervescent, effervescent, I shouldn't stop, keep saying that word. He says, this says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And this is part of this war. What happens, because we've been, we've been made anew in Christ by the gospel of grace, we've been given the Holy Spirit, and, and one of the first things that we became acutely aware of, at least I hope so, when we got saved is, there was something very deadly from our former self that remains. Now, I don't know the story of all of you here today, of course, but when I came to faith, I was a 16-year-old kid, uh, high school, didn't grow up in a Christian family, had no Christian upbringing at all. I, I came across the gospel as completely alien news to me. I was shocked by it. I was completely overwhelmed by it. And by God's grace, I received it by faith. That's how I came to faith. You know, one of the things I, I presumed wrongly, very naively, was when I, I, remember, I remember where I was in church, Sunday night service, the gospel hit me, I felt completely new. It, it's, almost, it's almost corny, right? It's almost, it's almost cheesy to say this, but, but I felt like the whole world had changed. Not just, I didn't just feel like I had changed, I felt like the entire world was different, right? You know, colors were brighter, tastes were better, weird stuff like that. I was totally revolutionized by the gospel. And... I was determined never to sin again. That was it. Now, you more mature saints have every bit of license right now to have a chuckle to yourself. I, you could not have come to me that night. I'd just gotten saved and tapped me on the shoulder and says, Listen, young man, love the zeal, love the piety, but be warned, you're almost certainly going to sin again. I would have declared you an antichrist. Like that was, the, to me, that was the voice of the devil, right? And what happened, right, no one, no one needs to be a Nostradamus to know. What happened was, what? Yeah, thank you for your vote of confidence. I, I sinned, right, yeah, that's right. I expected, that's what I expected you to say. So the next Sunday I turned up to church, you know what I did? I tried to get saved again. That went on for six months. I had no mature believers in my life to sit me down and say, Craig, when we turn to the New Testament... We encounter this struggle, this combat, this war between the new man and the old man, between the new nature and the body of death, the flesh, the Adamic original. No one had communicated. In fact, I wasn't even a very good church that had any theological underpinnings at all, so I couldn't really experience that anyway. 
But I remember this roller coaster I was on for literally months. Every weekend, I would try and find a reason to get a pastor and say, pray for me again, I've lost my salvation. Now you would have thought in that time there'd be a pastor who knew his Bible well enough to say, young man, you don't lose salvation because salvation is not your possession to lose. Salvation is God holding you in the grip of grace which he cannot let you go. There was none of that. So we look at Paul and we look at Paul and we think about, we think about this apostle, right? Like, like when we look at Paul's contribution to the kingdom, Paul's theological knowledge, the colossal intellect of the apostle, Paul's, Paul's indefatigable missionary journeys, the miracles he wrought, the books of the Bible he literally wrote. And he goes through this experience. He goes through it where he says, there's nothing in me. In this flesh, there's nothing good. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Let me tell you this, this afternoon, saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will have moments like that. And when you do, you can at least say, I've arrived at the spirituality of the Apostle Paul. That's what you can say. Not that we are apostles. Not that there is a super level of supernatural achievement of maturity. But simply that this is the normal Christian experience. So if you're thinking rationally, which means you're not thinking with your heart, you're thinking with the faculties of reason, interpreting scripture faithfully, applying it to your life, you'll see that a believer can derive comfort even from the existence of a condemning heart. If you're thinking about this with biblical categories well and truly in view, you will realize that what John says Not if, when your heart condemns you. Take heart. Take heart. And for two reasons, John says. Firstly, God's greater than your heart. Like, huge amen, big tick. That's the best news all day. When my heart is condemning me, God is greater. And secondly, God knows all things. It reminds me of the natural bodily phenomenon. If we were to do an historical study this afternoon, don't worry, we're not going to do that. Some of you would enjoy it, I would, but we're not. We would find that throughout the history of fatalities, as much as the data is available and the statistics have been properly collected and collated, we would discover that a huge portion of humans throughout the history of the human existence have died from fever. Now that's curious indeed because fever is not... A disease, right? You you realize this. Fever is the body's reaction to disease. Fever is what your body does when it has or it has detected disease. And fever is the engagement of your immune system. Yet while you're feeling the fever, you're feeling dreadfully ill. Anybody here had a fever at least in the last 12 months? Yeah, quite a few of you, right? You know that feeling. In fact, we take medication now to try and, try and break the fever, try and cull that fever. It's a horrible feeling. But what you're feeling is not sickness. What you're feeling is the body's natural defense against actual sickness. Fever is not a disease. It's a sign that your body is trying to fight infection or illness. Fever is activated by the body's immune system. Yes, a fever can be dangerous, and history has proven that. But fever is not the enemy. In much the same way, we, we don't become twisted fanatics and ascetics and revel in the moroseness of heart condemnation. 
We, we realize that often what happens is because we have a new heart implanted by God through regeneration and this heart believes, but then the heart knows there's still sin. There's still wretchedness. There's still disease in the body. There's still infection. There's still alien, uh, alien encroachments of, of cells and, and broken down and malignant parts of your flesh. And what does your heart do? Your heart goes to war by the Spirit. Your heart makes you feel condemned, dreadful. So what do you do? What on earth do we do? We can see now, at least I trust we can see now, that whether you are a brand new believer, first day in the faith, or you are Paul the Apostle level spiritual maturity, we can now see that a a heart condemnation can be normal for all of us. So what's our... What's our action? What's our approach? What is our remedy for this? Firstly, maybe most obviously, can I just say this as frankly and directly as I possibly could articulate it? Don't trust your heart. Now, I don't see this as much here in Australia, but when I lived and ministered in the US in several different states, you know, I realized that people do, it's not just in the movies, not just in TV shows, people do say all the time, follow your heart. Right? Christians say it. It's the most bizarre thing for a Christian to say, having read your Bible, that you should follow your heart. What does the Bible say about the human heart? There you go. Well, you've done a good job, but let me read it. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? I can't. You can't. Now, yes, this is the unregenerate heart. Yes. We should have a distinction. What we should not be doing is anchoring our hope and our faith and our confidence in what our heart tells us. In fact, the best Christian advice you can give someone is literally don't follow your heart. Follow the word. Follow Jesus. Follow the implications of the gospel. Don't go searching within some bizarre recondite message from God. Turn to the scripture. Some interesting notes here from the English Standard Bible study notes. On this verse, it says the heart here is a metaphor for the human will and emotions. It says it's deceitful, it's torturous, it's uneven, it's crooked like a bad road, desperately sick, it's medically incurable. Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question that anticipates a negative answer. That's the human heart. Oh, how many Christians? Let's, let's, let's speak about just, just the Christians that we know, that we interact with on a regular basis. How many Christians do we know would be made all the healthier, spiritually speaking, if they stopped listening to their heart? If they didn't worry about so much how they felt or what their inclinations were and just turn to the pages of Scripture and see how God would lead and guide and instruct. We have a renewed heart. I want to make that distinction. That is important. And yet our heart is not always wrong it's just unreliable and what do you call an unreliable guide treacherous if i told you you had to go on a long drive many turns twists and and corners in the road you've never been this way before it's a it's let's say it's a 1000 kilometer drive you're allowed to use your gps if randomly every fifth tenth or fifteenth direction is wrong How would you feel as far as placing your confidence in that GPS map? Very little at all. I'm not here saying that now that we're redeemed, we're renewed, we're regenerated, your heart is still fully depraved as we see in Jeremiah. That's not what I'm arguing. 
I'm arguing now the heart has been made new, it can still be mistaken. It can still be unreliable. And as unreliable means it's always a dangerous guide to follow. So the first thing is, we are not called as Christians, New Testament believers, to follow our heart. We're called to follow the Scripture. Secondly, don't ask questions of your heart that it can't answer. This, is, this I think, is far more important than the first point of application that we've drawn this afternoon. The reason why a lot of Christians will come to me over the years and sit down and say, Pastor, I'm just not feeling it. I'm struggling. I want to throw it all in. I, I want to give up. I want to resign my membership. I want to get out of it all. I just don't feel it. I, I, I want to push back and I want to pray. Feel what exactly? When I feel saved. What I didn't read in the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith having felt the right thing. Salvation is an objective act of God on our behalf in Christ. Don't ask your heart questions that it's not designed to answer. You should never ask yourself, do I feel saved? You should ask yourself, is Jesus a sufficient savior of sinners? And the answer is, are you a sinner? And the answer is, is Jesus able to save you? And the answer is, what other question do you want to ask? It's the simplest equation in the world. Is he able to save to the uttermost all and any which come to him? Yes. Am I coming to him? Yes. Salvation done. That's it. It was interesting. I was listening this week again to a, a resource on, on Charles Spurgeon. Some of you know I've been working, it feels like five years now, on a doctoral dissertation on the life of Charles Spurgeon. And he had this lady come and visit him in his vestry after a church service. Some of you don't know Spurgeon. He was a, a Baptist preacher of the Victorian era in England. She sat down and she says, I feel like I believe everything that you say the gospel says. I feel like I'm on board. I, I concede. I just don't know why I can't trust Jesus. And Spurgeon, normally a fairly mild-mannered minister of the gospel, he had something of, a, of an outrage. She said she couldn't trust Jesus. And Spurgeon said, what, on, what are you talking about? She said, I don't understand your reaction. I'm just, I'm just saying that I can concede to the facts as you present them in the gospel. I don't feel like I can trust Jesus. And Spurgeon says, you're saying Jesus is untrustworthy? She said, no, not at all. No, it's not, why don't you trust him? Well, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like I can trust him. I don't feel like I can trust him. Spurgeon says it's one way or the other. He's either trustworthy, i.e. I trust him, or you are calling him a liar, a deceiver, and untrustworthy. Pick your lane. It's one or the other. She was outraged. You can imagine. Most people expect pastoral counseling to be nothing more than coddling and, and, and those such things. She said, well, will you at least pray with me? He said, I will not. He stood up, stormed out of the office. She yelled out, please come back. I'm asking for help. He said, you're not asking for help. You're asking for me to justify you blaspheming the name of Jesus, saying he's not trustworthy. She said, I'm not saying that. He said, that's exactly what you've said. He left her. Several hours later, she came to his home. She was an absolute mess of tears and bawling and screeching. said, you are so right. If he is trustworthy, but I retain my trust, I restrain myself from trusting him, then I've accused him of being untrustworthy. The gospel is the simplest thing in the world. It's to look to Christ, to say therein lies the greatest hope and assurance and confidence of sins forgiven, eternal life granted, because Jesus is sufficient. That's the gospel. Look to Christ. 
and live. Don't ask your heart to give you a sense of, a feeling of, a confidence in. That's not what your heart is there to do. Your confidence in your salvation is in the reality that Jesus saves sinners. It's your recognition that you are a sinner, i.e. you qualify. His salvation is yours if you go and approach and call upon him to save Looking under Jesus, he is all satisfying in the courts of the Lord and he should be all satisfying in the hearts of his children. Of course, the great, the great St. Augustine quote was this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. Hebrews 12, 2, we looked at this just last week, says, Looking under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What things are you trying to satisfy your heart with? What things are you asking your heart to be satisfied with? You may have a new heart because you're born again, you're born anew, and praise God for that, but your heart is not there as an organ of assurance. The objective statement of the gospel exists as your place to derive your assurance. Lastly, we're well and truly out of time here this afternoon as far as my clock says. What's curious is what John says. We go back to our text. John says, 1 John 3.20 again, just to remind you. John said, for whenever our heart condemns us, then John says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, in, in the most organic sense, I believe what John is saying is you, you may go through seasons where your heart condemns you. It crushes you with a sense of, of, of disbelief or frustration or despair and depression. Those, those experiences may come, but your heart isn't what is saving you. God is who is saving you, and God is omnipotent and glorious. And then secondly, it says, and God knows everything. And so that's, that's, that's organic, but I think more broadly, if we dial out a little bit from our text, we can, we can derive one more application point just before we close. You must, you must know your word, and you must all the more know the God of that word. Those seasons when your heart condemns you, you must be able to say, the God omnipoteth reigns. You must be able to say, God omniscient, sees all, knows all, understands all. I feel like God. I am in a cellar and a dungeon of utter abject despair. But you know everything and you're everywhere and you're glorious and your power is inexhaustible, God. It is upon you that I lean for my salvation. There's this, there's this negative feedback cycle that so often happens. People spiral when they're going through these dark nights of the soul. They start to believe their heart when their heart condemns. They start to buy into to the rhetoric of their, their inner person saying, you're not good enough. God doesn't want you. God doesn't need you. God can't use you. What benefit are you? And you know that's silly. You know that's crazy. But you start to believe it. And the more you start to believe it, the more you go searching into the, into the, the, the inner cavities of your heart, trying to find hope, find assurance, and it's not there. It's not where John told you to look. If your response to going through despairing moments of doubt, if your response to that is to look inward, you've already failed. What does John say to look? The first thing John says after, he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God, our eyes turn upward. Our eyes turn to the scripture. 
and we learn things about this ancient of days, this almighty, this omniscient, glorious, sovereign being who reigns. We learn things about this God, and in learning about this God, we love him because all the more that we love him. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, used to have this, this quip. He used to say that the more we learn about God, the more we love God, and the more we love God, the more like God we become. That's the nature of the Christian life. That's the positive cycle of upward growth, pulling us out of despair and doubt and depression to learn more about God. You can't learn more about God without loving him more because he's altogether lovely. Everything you learn about God increases your affection for God. And the more you love God, the more like God you become. The more hopeful, the more clear-sighted, the more clear-thinking, the more useful for his kingdom you become. Would you join with me as we pray and ask God's blessing around this study of this simple text here this afternoon?